Legendary music producer Don McKinnon was just 15 years old when he developed what would become a lifelong fascination with making music mixtapes. Songs were sort of trapped on vinyl, you know, there were albums were on vinyl and that's where the songs lived. And there were radio DJs who mixed it up and, and played, the, uh, played different songs from different uh, albums on, on shows. But the ability to sit down and sort of liberate those songs from their albums and create something new uh, was fascinating to me. Little did McKinnon know it, but that simple idea of creating mixtapes to share his passion for music and curation would lead him to revolutionize the music industry and how you discover, listen, share, and build your community around music today. And that's whether you're browsing through iTunes or standing at your local Starbucks, shazamming some unknown artist as you wait for your iced caramel latte. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan. Welcome to the 52nd and final episode of season two of When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand positioning and narrative. Joining me today to talk about the mixtape of his life and career is Don McKinnon. He's the former founder and CEO of Hear Music, an innovative music retailer featuring the first CD-based listening stations, which he sold to Starbucks and developed that company's strategic music platform, releasing more than 300 eclectic CD compilations. Don also created the Hear Music label, which released the triple platinum Grammy award-winning Ray Charles compilation, Genius Loves Company. Rolling Stone's Rarities, 1971 to 2003, and Bob Dylan's iconic first recordings of Live at the Gaslight. McKinnon also was instrumental, so to speak, in building one of the most famous global corporate social responsibility platforms for Product Red. That's the organization that Bono and Bobby Schreiber created to help fight AIDS in Africa. McKinnon brought in artists including Coldplay, Jay-Z, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, Usher, and dozens more to the platform. Now, McKinnon is about to transform how you discover, curate, and build community through podcasts using the same concept he pioneered in music. What else but mixtapes? Tomorrow, he's unveiling his new stealth podcast curation platform called Hark. Here to tell us more about his life and times and about Hark is Don McKinnon. Don, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chitra. It's great to be here. I'm the season finale. This is, this is amazing. Um, but thanks for that intro. That's great. So do you remember how the idea of mixtapes came up when you were in high school? So, you know, I think it must be that every generation kind of thinks they're at a magic, uh, they're at like a pivotal moment in the, in the history of technology evolution. Um, but I, I do remember loving, uh, I just remember making them and I remember the act of making them and it sound, and for many younger listeners, uh, it may seem crazy to talk about it, right? Because we could just sort of drag and drop songs wherever we want in Spotify and what is Spotify, but, but some giant mixtape. But there was a time, <laughs> you know, when we walked to school in the snow and there was a time when, um, you know, songs were sort of trapped on vinyl, you know, there were albums were on vinyl and that's where the songs lived. And there were radio DJs who mixed it up and, and played the, uh, played different songs from different uh, albums on, on shows. But the ability to sit down 
and sort of liberate those songs from their albums and create something new uh, was fascinating to me. And it took time, right? So again, for folks who even, you know, like not quite as young listeners who remember making CD, mix CDs, uh, where again, you could sort of drop a digital file. This was, it happened in real time. So you had to plan it out. You know, I remember sitting on the, on the floor of my room with the records spread out, organizing them and, you know, making notes about the order I wanted to have the songs appear in. Um, and, uh, and as you recorded it, you know, you drop the needle on the song and, and it's recording it in real time onto the tape. Um, and while you're doing that, you're writing uh, liner notes, which are, you know, cause you're making, the beauty of a mixtape is you end up with an artifact, um, a physical thing you can give to someone. And, you know, the beauty of a mixtape is you're helping them discover something new and you're giving them a lens through which to approach it, you know? So part one is you need to name your mixtape. It needs to have a clever title that's a theme, right? Whether it's breakup songs or drive-in music, driving music or whatever, you have a concept for it and you need to come up with a clever name. And then for each song, you know, you're writing that little couple of notes on this little cardboard folded Maxell insert for the cassette that for each song tells the person you're giving it to why you chose that song and, and how to listen to it. Um, and so I, I just absolutely loved making them. And uh, they were, you know, and in, in many ways, that activity, I think, has informed kind of uh, my approach to helping people discover music and, and now podcasts. So, and so where was this? Tell me a little bit about where you were born and where you went to school and, and geographically, where was all this happening? Uh, I was born in New Jersey. Uh, I grew up in Short Hills, New Jersey. Um, I went away to high school. I went to boarding school in Connecticut at a school called Choate um, and Choate Rosemary Hall. And uh, I, found, you know, so I found myself with a bunch of other friends who I was learning about music from, much the way all high school students learn about music. Um, but we really loved sort of adopting this ability to construct something that would sort of be something you could hold in your hand and listen to as an experience. And so tell us a little bit about the, the, the music that you included in those mixtapes, your early music interests. Were they always eclectic? Um, they were, they certainly got more eclectic as I got through college. Um, and, you know, it is, uh, so I, I would say I started as a big REM fan. Um, you know, this is uh, the early to mid 80s. Um, but I loved Laurie Anderson and Lou Reed, who to me were different artists, but who ended up marrying each other. And I would see them walking their dog in the West Village later in my life. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Um, I was obsessed with Tom Waits. Of all the artists I went on to interview um, when I did hear music, you know, the Rolling Stones, uh, etc. Tom Waits was the one I was the most excited about. But I also, you know, found my way to, uh, I loved the Goldberg Variations by Bach, uh, done by Glenn Gould, who you could hear singing a little bit when he was playing. He recorded them twice. Uh, and in the 1982, which he re-recorded them at the end of his life, you could kind of hear him, him singing a little bit while he was doing it. 
that's a fun question, right? To ask me what I was listening to then because music discovery was harder. Um, it was more expensive. It took more time and research. You had to read magazines and ask friends, and then you had to go to the record store and take a chance and plop down significant money to buy a record. And it also meant that you listened to an album all the way through and savored all of the tracks or tried to savor all of the tracks as opposed to what we have today, which is you know the, the concept of the album is getting eroded. And you also loved writing, I guess, in magazines and, and you were, without even knowing it at the time, bringing all of these passions together with these liner notes that you were, I think, lovingly writing. Uh, and it seemed like a real sort of a combination of things that you cared about that you were bringing together into what would eventually be a kind of this revolutionary idea. Yeah, I, I, I did love making magazines and um, I made uh, a couple of different magazines in high school and college. I partnered with a friend, Pat, to create a, a sort of a current affairs, more politically oriented one. Um, but my favorite one that we did was called Route 2 that I did in college. I went to Williams College. Route 2 goes through Williams College, but there were more associations than that. It, when, if you think about it, when you're making a magazine, you're also sort of collaging an experience together that someone you're going to allow them to go through, right? You're sort of creating a narrative that they're going to go through more than websites are today. And, you know, a great magazine is a curated is a is an experience of serendipity right it isn't about you don't get a magazine and go look at the line at the table of contents and just go to uh, page 97 a great magazine is a magazine that you actually uh, move through and the best magazines are organized where you're sort of led into the experience think about the new yorker starting with to the talk of the town or goings on about town and then moving further into it um, so I did love that about magazines and, you know, mixtapes, you could say, are the most sort of control freak version of that, right? Where I'm giving you something that you're going to listen to in a sequence. And while you're listening, you're going to read the companion text that we have with it. And, you know, this may be where you're going, but I really do feel like those two uh, pursuits that seem very different, making mixtapes and making magazines, actually were very similar um, inspirations in my mind, and they were about trying to kind of create a, an interactive experience that there wasn't really the technology to do yet. And that also kind of intertwined when you were in college or about to graduate and took you on your next sort of path towards creating a more concrete life around uh, music. And that was when you kind of had a setback as you were graduating and looking for work. Oh, yeah. I had this great experience, which is I got, uh, I, I was so, uh, so happy. I got a job very early in senior year. I was going to write for Seven Days Magazine, which, you know, raise your hand out there if you know, if you remember Seven Days Magazine, but it's a bit of a legendary magazine. It was, you know, writing about culture in New York and in New York City. It was edited by Adam Moss, who now does The New Yorker. I mean, the New York, mag New York Magazine. And so I laughed at all my friends senior year of college while they took the, you know, the LSATs and uh, interviewed with consulting firms uh, or investment banks and said, no, I'm, I've got a job writing for my dream magazine living in New York City. And then in, in the spring, uh, they had their funding pulled. Uh, they'd been around for 10 years. They actually won the Magazine of the Year Award for General Excellence. That 
year um, after they had uh, sort of gone under. So I suddenly, uh, it was maybe it was April or, or March, found myself without what I was going to do next. And that sort of led to the creation of Hear Music. Uh, tell me how that came about. So I had worked the summer before at Time Magazine uh, as an intern and met a friend uh, named Andrew McKee, who was at Harvard Business School between first and second year. And he and a fellow student, Kevin Sheehan, had done the spring business plan competition. And they were looking at the music industry and how adults were sort of, how hard it was to discover music and how so much of the music industry focused on sort of the top 40. And I started collaborating with them, even though I wasn't going to school with them in the spring, uh, on this idea for a magazine slash catalog that would recommend, that would recommend music. And so when Seven Days went away, I decided to join forces with them and we founded Hear Music. Um, that business plan actually won the competition and then we founded Hear Music the day after I graduated from Williams, June 18th, 1990. Well, I guess creating a catalog is easier said than done, right? Especially sort of, this was pre-internet uh, and how did you go about it and what were some of the challenges you faced? Yeah, so I feel like, um, you know, I often, I often say Hear Music, which went through all these evolutions, was kind of a, a format in search of a medium, you know, and the format was very much, you know, inspired by the work, the, the idea of the mixtape that you could listen to music in a serendipitous way and discover things and the, the narrative experience of a, an immersive visual experience of um, an editorial experience of a magazine. So the, we created these beautiful magazines when I years later met Bob Dylan's manager, as I was talking to him, I saw on his bookshelf, he had the Hear Music catalogs all in a row wedged in there. So that was great, uh, great catharsis, delayed reaction catharsis. I approached making it a little bit like a mixtape in a magazine. I organized each of the spreads had a theme, whether it was songwriters that could be novelists or the birth of bebop or, um, you know, Amateur Night at the Apollo. And then I would also interview my favorite artists about their, the music they thought people should be listening to. Um, you know, early interviews I did were like John Lee Hooker and Rye Cooter. Uh, and then that, you know, went on to John Prine who uh, passed away last year. And um, just, you know, an incredible array of my musical heroes who loved participating in this, um, in this project of trying to help people discover the music that they loved, um, you know, and uh, many of those artists talked about the same uh, artists, you know, Lyle Lovett and uh, many other artists would talk about Willis Allen Ramsey, who I had never heard of. And Chitra, have you ever heard of Willis Allen Ramsey? There you go. So Willis Allen Ramsey made one unbelievable record in 1972 um, and was one of those seminal influential artists on so many of these folks that they were able to cast back at. But to your point about interactivity, we were doing everything we could. And I think part of what, you know, it was like an education trying to do this thing as a catalog at first, you know, the artist choice influences and how do you get people to want to discover something that they don't know. The mission of Hear Music was how do I get you beyond the top 40? How do I help you want to hear something different. And uh, one example of what we tried to do was uh, 
you know, I interviewed Ry Cooter, the great uh, guitarist and genius musician, and he said, what I think everyone should listen to is a, is a blues musician from Mali called Ali Farkature. And I said, okay, well, you got to explain why they're going to want to hear that. How would you recommend that to a friend? And he said, well, Ali Farkature is like John Lee Hooker played backwards. And I said, that's great. And it, so we blew it up really big in the catalog and it was beautiful. And people would call in and say, okay, I, I'm almost ready to take a chance on that, but what does it really sound like? And our, we had all, we were in Boston, we had all Berkeley School of Music students working for us and they would run in, they would go, hold on. And they would run into the warehouse, grab the CD, put it into a boom box and hold the phone up to the boom box. And that was our version of on-demand streaming in uh, 1992 and, and three, which was, uh, you can, so you could see we were doing everything we could to kind of create an interactive experience. Um, so, so that's sort of all the work we were doing to make catalogs work. But at the end of the day, it's an incredibly capital intensive, uh, intensive business. And, you know, so it's that entrepreneur's dile dilemma where, you know, both of my part original partners had left. Lisa Larman, the, who was a, another founder, who was the creative director, who we eventually got married and uh, became husband and wife. And we had all these amazing people working for us doing this catalog. And we could just tell, like, we were trying to do this, but the limitations of the format were holding us back. And so that's what led us to feeling like we needed to make a change. And, you know, for those of you listening who are saying, um, the internet, there was no internet yet. <laughs> it was too early. So, um, so that's what led to creating the Hear Music stores. Yeah, you know, it's, you kind of said to me that you were actually dreaming of the internet without knowing what it was, right? You had this great idea, but you just didn't know how to, how to get it to people in the way, in the scope and scale you wanted to get it to people. Yeah. I mean, I think if you kind of track the, track the, the shifts for Hear Music, it's like we created a, a, a magazine that was as interactive as we possibly could. We literally created 800 numbers you could call in and put in a code and listen to 30 seconds of the song. And we just sort of did everything we could with that format. And then we said, let's create a store but make it essentially as interactive an environment as we can and as graphic and editorial an environment as we can. So again, this sounds absurd to listeners in the present day, um, thinking about where we are with technology. But at the time, th we created the first music stores that had listening stations in them in North America or in the United States. My mother likes to point out that in Toronto, Canada, when she was growing up, she could go into a store and there were, she could put a head, an album in, she'd go into a little booth. But, you know, that idea of an interactive um, listening station was, was something that hadn't been done. We really tried to make the store an experience that you walked through. Like people have described the Hear Music stores as sort of a combination of a Copenhagen coffee house, a Japanese sushi bar, and like the best indie bookstore, you've been, and, and sort of an art gallery um, or a museum. So as you walked through, it was like you were walking through the pages of the magazine. So um, here is David Byrne recommending the music he thinks you should be listening to from Cuba. And as you walk through, here's Yo-Yo Ma getting, helping you get into the music of the classical period. Um, and here's an entire vault uh, on how, you know, the best of 50s jazz. And so that real sense of curation 
so it wasn't just about having listening stations, but was around making a store that I don't think there's ever been a store before or since that had more words on its walls <laughs> than, than that store, than those stores did. Um, and, and sort of using graphics to sort of help, help people go places. We had, as you walked in, there was a beautiful rotunda with a plaster wall. And Lisa, the creative director, made actual slides, physical slides. So we would pick for each song that played, we would, I would pick a lyric or we would write a little uh, few sentences about it. And she would make slides that were just projecting beautiful white type on the wall. So it looked like somebody had gone up and painted the quote on the wall and people would walk in and sort of look at it. And then the song would change <laughs> and it the slide would change and people would look up and say, wait, how did that happen? So it was all, and we had motorcycle taillights under the, under the CDs that were playing. And so all of this was super fun to do. And again, sort of, trying to build another form of interactivity. And I think all these kind of training wheels of interactivity meant that when we finally got the internet, we were, you know, to the point of your question, we were, we were, we brought more to it. I think, um, uh, I think it, it was helpful to have gone through those phases. Lisa herself, who had been before we met the designer of a number of music magazines, musician magazine, she redesigned cream, uh, magazine. She uh, is of that generation, the last of the generation designers who were taught um, doing paste up, physical paste up of design, right, before computers. Uh, and she actually took the job with Hear Music because we were going to buy her a Macintosh and train, you know, let her learn Quark, which was the design program. And she also feels strongly that that learning analog allows you, when you get the freedom of digital, um, to be smarter. How many stores did you have and, and how did you make this all happen physically, financially? It sounds like a huge, a labor of love, but a massive undertaking. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, I mean, one of the most pivotal meetings of my life, we went to, we were in Boston and we met and went and met with a man named Charles Layton, um, who owned a company called CML, which was sort of a holding company that owned, they own Boston Whaler and Nordic Track and Smith and & Hawken and Nature Company. And Smith and & Hawken and Nature Company were companies that had stores and catalogs. And so we went and I was pitching him in a big sort of trading places picture, kind of very severe uh, businessy boardroom. And I'm uh, pitching this man on, you know, yes, we're doing these catalogs, but I have a vision for creating an interactive retail environment. And he started smiling and kept smiling. And then he interrupted me and said, Don, I would like to uh, fly you to um, California to meet with uh, a person who, whether you end up working together or not, will be one of your favorite people ever. And his name is Richard Altuna. Altuna, R Richard is one of the greatest retail designers in the history of that uh, discipline. He designed the NBA store uh, in New York, um, Patagonia stores, all the, every restoration hardware in Pottery Barn and Williams-Sonoma you were ever in, like all of those stores he did. He said, well, if we're going to think about interactivity, we have to go to Paris. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm up for Paris. 
but we, because there was nowhere to sort it, he said, because we have to think about how interactivity works in a retail environment. And so we went to Paris and first we went to, it's an interesting quick story. We went to Virgin Megastore, which had a bank of listening stations with the hits, right? So you could listen to the new Madonna record and you could listen to the new Mariah Carey record. Um, and then there were acres of CDs and bins that you couldn't listen to. And so that didn't seem right. This is sort of a Goldilocks story. Then we went to a store, a really beautiful store called FNAC, F-N-A-C, um, which is, feels like you're in a houseware store, like a home. It feels almost like a residential environment. And then there would be a cushy chair with headphones and there was one CD on repeat at a table. And we sat there for a minute and that didn't feel right. And he said, this isn't right. We have to go to Frankfurt. So we flew to Frankfurt. And in Frankfurt, at the top of a very traditional department store, there was a very stripped down record store. And above every bin, there was a shelf. And on the shelf, there was a single disc changer with one CD on repeat. And what was interesting about it was, as people shopped, wherever they were, they would just take the headphone and put the headphones on and listen for about six seconds. And then they would either take them off or they would look up and grab that CD, right? <laughs> so, so that that for me is the serendipity. It's serendipity versus discovery as work, right? And, um, and so they found their way to something they never would have found. And that inspired us when we built the, Hear, the first Hear Music store. We actually built it, we, our idea was that we were gonna have single disc, change, single disc players. Um, and then while we were building it, Sony came out with a cheap enough 10 disc CD changer. Again, your younger listeners have no idea what I'm talking about that allowed us to go buy these and solder, you know, we bought buttons at Radio Shack and literally screwed buttons onto the shelves and soldered them back to these 10 disc changers. And we opened this store and people came in and a, a, a number of people over the first months said, where is the computer? Right, they thought there was a giant hard drive in the back of the store. There was sort of, so again, it's that sense of trying to create a sense of magic um, around using you know analog, so that when you ultimately get the magic technology of the internet and everything, um, you have a better sense of how to use it. And so you were starting to get a lot of attention around these stores, and then you got you had an interesting uh, call, I guess, or visit from uh, Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz. Right. Right. So, you know, I think we, the, just quickly, like, so the first store we ever built was on 4th Street in Berkeley. Um, we built a store at the Stanford Shopping Center in Palo Alto that Steve Jobs shopped at regularly. And when I met Steve Jobs years later, and I had them send me, you know, the fax me his receipts, the receipts so that I kind of know what Steve Jobs <laughs> bought over those many years. So when I finally, you know, Howard Schultz introduced me to Steve Jobs, and you know, he said, he said, I know it's your music, my favorite store. And I said, and you love Ennio Morricone. <laughs> so it was kind of fun to break privacy for the man who, you know, created our lack of privacy. No. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, Sandwich Shopping Center, Santa Monica, and those stores were able to truly drive demand on music that otherwise was, you know, sort of left out of, of the equation. And so, and so we allowed us to have a much different, you know, that was incredibly valuable that we were able to take a, a, a band that maybe wasn't being played on the radio or anywhere else and make it our kind of top seller. Um, and that was great for the musicians. 
but it was also great for the customers who would come in and, and walk away with something that, you know, really felt like uh, they had discovered something new. And I think that plays into what we'll talk about with Hark and podcasters too. So one day I got this call from Howard Schultz. We built a store on Russian Oak in uh, Chicago, the corner of Russian Oak. And we had built it next door at the same time as a really beautiful flagship Starbucks store. And Howard Schultz called up and said, you know, I just, you know, I, I don't know if you know, we have a store next to each other. And I was like, I have many fewer stores than you have, I'm aware. And, uh, and he said, you know, the, the, big, the big thing that the customers are asking to do, all the co comments are that they wanna knock down the wall between the Starbucks and the Hear Music store, and they wanna integrate the experience. And so that was a pretty good opener. Uh, I flew up, at that point we were based in San Francisco and I flew up to Seattle. And that conversation led to Starbucks acquiring Hear Music. You know, it was, this is 1999, the internet bubble is going like crazy. And uh, a lot of our investors were saying, hey, let's go raise a bunch of money and, and go on the internet. Um, but the internet was still, we had just gone from 14.4 modems to 28.8 modems. You know, it was still very slow, very hard to deliver that full experience there. And then when I got a call from Howard, I was like, look at this beautiful thing, right? They're playing, there was a great team there, uh, Timothy and Holly and David, uh, who were playing incredibly great music for people. And like one of the top questions to the baristas was always, excuse me, what is this song that's playing? And the ability to take that incredible, uh, that sort of serendipitous moment and, and start creating real mixtapes, right? If you, this takes us back to the high school, right? Everything had been an approximation, but here we can create compilations and really, you know, mixtape at, at scale. Um, and it was really, really fun. So, um, so tell me about your role at Starbucks. You, you, I guess you guess built their, their whole strategic uh, platform for this kind of curated uh, serendipitous experience around music. Yeah, as I said, there were great folks there, Timothy Jones, uh, Holly Hinton, and David Brewster, who had started the kind of, uh, they, they were playing, uh, it was very focused on jazz and world music. And I felt like there was a way to sort of scale that. Um, and so it was around, you know, we built sort of the, the compilations you saw. So artist choice CDs, um, you know, on my 35th birthday, we interviewed the Rolling Stones uh, one after another, an hour each, uh, about their favorite music for their Hear Music Artist Choice CD, um, which was an unbelievable experience. And, um, and Opus Collections, where we would take an artist like Etta James and create a, a sort of our own mixtape of her, the best moments from her career. Um, and again, this was at a time where the physical distribution of music was going away. But, but digital hadn't really scaled yet. So there was a real magic, that was sort of a magic moment where you know, Starbucks was at sort of the perfect place to collapse marketing, like discovery and, and, and distribution in the same act. And it was, it was incredible. We did, you know, not only do we make the compilations, we put in the Wi-Fi networks. So I remember going to a meeting where the operators were saying the customers wanted more phone jacks <laughs> that you could, if you remember that, Star Starbucks put in Wi-Fi, which enabled an entire uh, whole nother level of experiences there. We did a 
the Hear Music XM 75 satellite radio station, which is now the coffee house station if you have Sirius XM. But uh, yeah, all sorts of amazing stuff. So we have to get some stories from you on what it was like to interview every member of the Rolling Stones on your 35th birthday. Oh, <laughs> so uh, they were in Toronto. They were preparing for the world tour of 40 Licks. Um, they were all living on the, they had the entire top floor of the Four Seasons. The team took uh, me and Tim Ziegler, who did the interview, uh, to the, uh, a suite at the end of the hall and brought them in one by one. And they each sort of have their own manager. So we had been faxed separate lists by each of the people so by, by for, for each of them. So none of them had seen what the others had picked, which is sort of funny. Um, and so, of course, you know, Charlie Watts came in first and said, I just want to make sure I didn't choose Chuck Berry because I assumed Mick and Keith would choose Chuck Berry. And lo and behold, neither of them had. And he got very upset. <laughs> Mick was incredible. And, you know, there were really surprising picks. You know, Mick uh, chose a song by Chardet. Um, and, uh, you know, that's sort of not what you would think Mick Jagger would put. Um, and then when, when Ron Wood came in and they each had sort of a, a rider for like what would be moved into the room before they came for Charlie Watts, it was a big pot of coffee for Mick Jagger. It was two wine goblets filled with cranberry juice for Ronnie Wood. It was a giant ashtray. And for Keith Richards, it was, uh, two bottles of Stolichnaya with, um, orange crush, can of Orange Crush open. <laughs> so, uh, but when Ron Wood came in, he immediately said, I need to see everyone's picks. Um, and he looked at Charlie's list and Charlie had chosen a song by Earl Bostic, which I'm not sure any of your listeners have heard of Earl Bostic. I had never heard of Earl Bostic. Earl's ba Earl Bostic was sort of a, Bostic was sort of a pop uh, R&B saxophone player um, from the 50s. I think, or the 60s. Um, and uh, he got very upset. Ron Wood said, we cannot have Earl Bostic on this, uh, on this compilation. This is our legacy. And he said, come with me, come with me. And he starts running down the hall. And so we follow him down the hall and he starts pounding on Charlie Watts's door. And I am just trying to have the interview not end. <laughs> uh, and he's saying, Earl, I won't say the word, I don't know, uh, but you know, Earl effing Bostic, are you kidding me? And shouting at the door. And finally, uh, and I'm thinking the managers are gonna make us go away and everything, but finally Charlie Watts opens, the, opens his door, sort of like Lurch and looks down at Ron Wood with a withering stare and says, I'll have you know, when I was nine years old, I heard Earl Bostic and it inspired me to rule up a newspaper in the shape of a saxophone and paint it yellow. So F you and hangs the door, <laughs> slams the door in his face. And uh, it was an amazing uh, moment. And Ron Wood said, okay. And then we went back <laughs> down the hall. And, uh, and that was, that's like, that's my Rolling Stone story. It's incredible the, the access you had and to all of these great musicians and, and what an education it must have been. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was beautiful. Like I have a lot of friends who are music journalists who have interviewed many of the same people, but it is different. It's a different conversation. You know, musicians talking about, well, this is my latest album and 
you know, they sort of have a formula they fall into when they get into press mode and they're talking about their new record and they have a little hard drive of quotes about it. And there's a great moment where they realize, you know, when we interviewed Lou Reed in his apartment in the West Village, he was very unwelcoming. You know, we were in his home, <laughs> but he was very, you know, there's a lot of stories of Lou Reed and we were about to live one of those mean Lou Reed stories. And he started just talking about the new record that he was making. And I interrupted him and said, you know, listen, that's not what this is. This is really, this is about what music do you wish people would hear? And he said, can I talk about doo-wop? And we said, yeah, absolutely. And he was like, okay, can I make you some tea? And he started putting on doo-wop records and playing them at top volume. And it was just incredible. So, um, you know, it is, it's a, I feel like I created my dream job and, uh, and it was a, it was a dream. What was it like to interview Tom Waits? So, uh, I think I said earlier, you know, I've interviewed all these amazing people, but like Tom Waits is the one that I was the most nervous about and the, that I wanted the most. And, uh, and Tim, who did many of the interviews with me, I think uh, felt the same way. And he was on a major label and we couldn't get to him for a long time. And then he switched to an indie label and we were able to get to, uh, to his wife, Kathleen, um, who said that he, he said, you know, oh, this just sounds like doing the SATs. Uh, but he told us to meet him at a truck stop in Sebastopol, which is up uh, north of San Francisco and uh, near you know, Sonoma. And which was like, we were suddenly in a Vim Vendors film, like Paris, Texas, like the perfect truck stop with the perfect little cafe. And we went in and sat in a booth and he came in carrying a stack of vinyl up to his chin and put it on the table. And I almost had a cardiac arrest. And I said, I can't, you know, so great to meet you. Thank you so much for bringing these records. And he said, actually, if you can help me out, I got the rest in the truck. And we went out and he, he had a big black Suburban and he opened the back doors and it was filled with CDs and albums. And we helped him, you know, he said, before I met Kathleen, these were all in pizza boxes. And uh, we carried them in and we sat in that truck stop diner in that booth spread. And he just went record by record. Um, and uh, it was an unbelievable uh, experience. And it went on for over three hours. Just incredible. That's an amazing story. Um, so then how did you end up with uh, building your own uh, music label? The Hear Music label, um, I, I, I think it really, the, the Etta James uh, collection that I talked about earlier, um, a lot of that music had come from a record label called Concord Records, um, which was run by a, a great, and is still run by a great man named Glenn Barrows. And we sold some unbelievable number of Etta James compilations in three weeks. And we and and so we had a conversation about you know what if we actually went and um, because we had this as we said unique ability to sort of play music for sixty million people a week and then and have have the record right there what if we went and found an artist and the artist that we found was Ray Charles and, and created sorry and created you know created the Hear Music label and and launched a new artist and I was thinking we would be finding you know uh, upstart singer-songwriter, uh, <laughs> but it was the greatest legend of them all, um, Ray Charles. And, you know, he wanted to do a, he had been passed, dropped by, I think, Universal. He had not, he'd been passed on by all the major labels. Imagine that. And what he wanted to do was a duets record. Um, and now I think it seems like, you know, 
Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett do a duets record every four minutes. Um, but at the time, there had been a very legendary one done by Frank Sinatra, but that was really sort of it. And you know, he was saying, I want to sing with Nora Jones. I want to sing with Elton John. I want to sing with uh, Diana Krall. And so we, we did it. And it was an incredible year of doing the recordings. Um, we did not know it at the time, but he was dying of liver cancer. Um, and it's the same time that Taylor Hackford and Jamie Foxx were making the film Ray. And, you know, I remember being at, you know, all of the recordings. I, I loved, there was one with Willie Nelson where they, they recorded it on the Eastwood soundstage at the Warner lot, which is, you know, you see that at the Grammys where there's the big, or the Oscars where there's the big uh, orchestra there. And then there's sort of isolation booths and they can score a film and an incredible setting. And they had Willie Nelson in one booth and Ray in the other and this giant orchestra. And, you know, it's, you can picture, right, Willie Nelson singing, when I was 17, it was a very good year. So it's this wistful song. Um, and it was an incredibly emotional experience. Um, and, you know, the, the last recording he ever made was with Elton John. Uh, Sorry seems to be the hardest word. And Elton was re recording an album. And they set up the studio across the hall and brought in Ray from the hospital and, and recorded it. Um, so it was an unbelievable experience. And then he, he passed away and that album won, it was the Adele of that <laughs> Grammys, right? It won eight Grammys, Record of the Year, the Nora Jones song with Ray, won Song of the Year. Um, and uh, uh, was an, that was a pretty good way to launch the Hear Music label that you could never follow up on. Um, we did release, as you mentioned at the top, Bob Dylan's uh, Live at the Gaslight, which are the Gaslight recordings that had been around on bootlegs, but never, never released. And we did a record with Herbie Hancock where, you know, it was sort of a duets record, but it was more than that. He went into the studio with John Mayer, whom he'd never met, and they wrote a song on the spot. That was pretty incredible. Um, so it allowed sort of albums that might otherwise never have happened to happen and to get a broad audience. And that was really satisfying. So what was the uh, next step in kind of the evolution of your, your journey through this, this time? So um, the next, uh, I mean, I could talk about all the great stuff at Starbucks forever, um, which was a, an incredible company. And I got there I, when there were 1100 stores and left when there were 10, I don't know what the numbers are, but I was there during this incredible period of growth. Um, one day, uh, Howard Schultz called me up and said, Bono is coming tomorrow. And they won't tell us why he's, the people won't tell us why he's coming. So, you know, I need, I should be in the meeting because it's probably about music. And I, of course, thought, you know, arrogantly thought, oh, of course, U2 has a new, must have a new record and, you know, we'll do an artist choice with U2 and Bono and it'll be great. Uh, but that is not what the meeting was about. It was, um, he had the, he was at the very beginning of creating Product Red, which was his organization to fight AIDS in Africa. Um, and at this point, you know, I think Product Red to your listeners, you know, most of what your listeners are wearing gives back to some brand in some way, it gives back to some cause, you know, so from the remove of 2020 
product red can seem pretty, um, I don't know, uh, uh, trite, but, um, but at that moment, it was a really incredibly innovative idea. Um, companies, Howard had actually had sort of an offsite a few months prior to that, where he talked about how customers were going to take an, do an audit of the businesses they did, the companies they did business with. But at that point, so much of what companies thought about was having a corporate social responsibility tab on their, um, their website about what their, maybe their foundation was doing. And it didn't get into the dialogue with the conversation with the customer. It didn't get into the brand itself. And so red was this ability to, you know, Bono's, you know, idea was this is a, an emergency and it's an emergency, not just of raising money, but of helping people understand what's happening. And so we need the best, in his words, the best storytellers in the world to help do that. And I think it's to his credit that he would then say, and some of the best storytellers in the world are Steve Jobs, Phil Knight, you know, are these incredible uh, brands. And, uh, and if we could sort of hijack their marketing in a way that, um, that communicated what's going, you know, what, what this emergency is in an empowering way and made it really simple to make a difference. Um, and so I was completely blown up. You know, he basically said, I'm flying up the coast. Two nights ago, I was with Steve uh, at, for Apple and I got him. Last night, I was with Phil Knight with Nike. That's how he says Nike. And I got him. And now I'm here for you, you know, and uh, I was absolutely blown away by the idea. And, you know, he also talked about we're going to have the most, the most creative people in the world work for the poorest people in the world. Um, and, you know, so that wasn't just sort of Nike and its agencies, that was musicians and artists and writers and actors. Um, and I, I really loved that idea. Um, and so eventually, uh, I, I left and, and while we didn't do the Starbucks deal at that moment, I did leave and um, join Product Red, which at that point was very small and, uh, you know, a very small number of amazing people. As you mentioned, Bobby Shriver, um, Sheila Roach uh, is just an, was one of the most amazing people ever uh, that made it happen. And we, we were able, this tiny group of people were able to sort of have the fulcrum of these giant brands uh, to launch a brand, you know, on their, on their backs. And, and that's a really tricky thing too. You know, Steve Jobs was very, I can't have the Apple logo have parentheses around it. <laughs> you know, there is no way I'll let that happen, but he let it happen. And it was a, it was an incredible experience. And you were able to uh, bring in a whole new generation of artists in the process. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, when we launched on Oprah, uh, there was a big Oprah show where we launched and uh, Bono and Oprah went down Michigan Avenue. I was in the Motorola store with Kanye West, <laughs> uh, presidential candidate, Kanye West. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, but I think it, we did allow, we did create a, an, a, a way for musicians to turn their concerts red. We created a thing called Redwire, which was um, a subscription music service that was essentially like getting a mixtape from Red every, uh, every month with exclusive, um, so you would get an exclusive song from Coldplay or Jay-Z um, and, uh, and then an emerging song that you wouldn't have otherwise known about. And some other piece of content that would help you understand um, not just the 
the AIDS crisis, but but the cultures of um, Africa that you were helping. So we were helping you understand the, you know, that th that's a real, anyway, helping people really get a, get a vision and understanding of the people they were helping. So what did you do after Product Red that sort of was the next step in your curation and discovery and community process? <laughs> I went back to the, I, I love Product Red, I did it for five years, but we jumped, I, I wanted to get back to curation and discovery of culture. And, um, and so I created a company called Milk, M-I-L-Q, with two, uh, two co-founders, Jordan Jacobs and Tommy Poutinen. And it was really, that's the company out of which we're sort of uh, creating, creating Hark. But Milk was really um, saying, okay, we're now at a time where now we have the internet, unlike your music, right? You can share any digital content, uh, any, any culture, a song, a film clip, anything. Um, and yet the way we're sharing on social media right now feels like we're atomizing culture um, as opposed to organizing it. And, um, and so Milk was about finding a way to sort of allow people who love and have knowledge about certain areas of culture, whether it's 60s film, whether it's film noir or uh, tennis, to be able to share with each other in a way that sort of maps that area of culture. Um, and we... Um, launched a consumer business. We powered a book discovery experience for Barnes and Noble. Um, we developed an AI algorithm that we spun out and, and sold to TD Bank about a year and a half ago, which was very successful for everybody. Um, and then I really wanted to turn my attention to, you know, specifically solving the issues around podcasts. Why did that come about? Do you feel like the same barriers exist for podcasts as well? So I see a great sort of rhyme, you know, between the issues of um, around music and the issues around podcasting. I mean, first of all, podcasting is, it's, I mean, I mean one thing is I love podcasts. Um, and part of what I love about podcasts is what I love about music, right? I love, what I love about music is there's an incredible array of artists um, of incredible diversity out there. And yet the music industry feels like it's about, a, you know, uh, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy of this a bunch of music that sounds similar um, and the same sort of star system being uh, recirculated. And in podcasting, it's that times a billion, right? You, what we love about podcasting is the means of production have been handed to the people, right? So there's an incredible diversity of voices talking about a truly infinite array of topics, and there's incredible content out there. And so we, we want to tap, you know, I want to tap into that. And yet the tools that I'm given are, you know, the, the current apps are uh, sort of here. I've subscribed to six podcasts and those episodes pile up um, sort of like New York Times, uh, New Yorker issues I haven't <laughs> read yet, um, which is not to say I don't love those episodes, but what I feel, and as I've talked to other people who love podcasts feel is there's so much out there and there, it doesn't feel like podcasts are browsable. You know, I, what I want is sort of a prism that would refract it for me, like, you know, so I could sort of tap into the genius conversations that are happening out there. That's a great idea. It's, there's such a volume and there's no way to, to curate it at the moment. Exactly. And it's a, so I think it's a big problem for listeners. Uh, I know it's a problem for listeners, but it's also a really big problem for podcasters um, because it means that it's very, you know, the Apple 
the Apple podcast chart is a self-fulfilling <laughs> chart of its own, right? Uh, we can keep, we, it'll just, people will keep listening to The Daily um, or Joe Rogan and, and not get beyond it. And so the question of sort of how to solve that though is it's different than music, right? With music, um, uh, there was actually a really interesting uh, podcast last week. The Andreessen Horowitz podcast had the head of R&D for Spotify on and he talked about how, you know, and Spotify has made a major push on podcasts. And he talked about how with Spotify Discover for music, you can, you know, they give you a bunch of songs you've never heard of and people skip the song within two seconds. Like, nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and you can do that 10 times and then get to a song that you might like. But with podcasts that are, you know, and he said sort of with podcasts that are 90 minutes long, it isn't, it, you can't sort of needle drop into the beginning and understand exactly what it is that quickly. And so I think we need to take a different, if what we're gonna do is create a serendipitous way for a broad audience to find their way to podcasts they otherwise might not have discovered, I think we need a different model than, than that. And so the idea for Hark at its simplest is to go and find those great moments within podcast episodes. So, you know, you talking to Nina Totenberg about how as a young girl, she loved Nancy Drew and how that inspired her to become Nina Totenberg. Um, and there's tons of examples, right? Of like, the, you know, when we find ourselves telling people like all of you podcast listeners, right? You, I have that moment where I want you to listen to the whole episode, but you got to hear this one moment, right? That one moment is sort of the 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 genius thing that will be their way in. So the idea of Hark is, what if we could create an entire immersive listening experience out of the best moments from great podcast episodes, where we organize those moments into, yes, mixtapes, um, because what else would it be after listening to me for an hour? And that would do sort of two things at once, right? So we could have mixtapes on all different topics, musicians telling the story behind their song, or, you know, what are, what, what are different perspectives on Amy Coney, Coney you know, what are, what are the, pol the likely policies of Amy Coney Barrett? Um, uh, or, you know, America, different, different versions of uh, a history of the civil rights. Like think of all the beauty of podcast is all of the perspectives and the ability to create a mixtape that allows you to hit play, walk your beagle and hear it move from moment to moment and clip to clip. But at the same time, so you can listen to it the same as you listen to podcasts. But what's beautiful is each of those moments is an invitation to go listen to the whole episode, discover the podcaster that made it. And so you start from sort of being dropped into an amazing moment and you end up discovering a voice you might never otherwise have found. I want to circle back to the beginning here, looking back on sort of the mixtape of your life <laughs> and that young man who was creating mixtapes in high school. What would you say to that young man about this journey that you've been on? Well, I certainly didn't think it would have anything to do with anything I would end up doing. And so I think the number one thing I would say is, you know, find a way to keep pulling, keep pulling at the threads on this sweater, you know, keep keep doing the things you love and finding ways to apply those to 
what you want to do in your in your life and that you feel like can have a, a meaningful difference. So I feel very lucky that something I loved doing when I was 15 ended up, you know, being something that I could try to apply to what I wanted to accomplish, right? And what I wanted to accomplish was have other people have that incredible experience of discovering an artist they may otherwise, discovering Ale Farcature, finding themselves listening to a Malian blues guitarist and loving it because Ry Cooter helped you understand how to appreciate it. Similarly to with Hark, finding yourself listening to an incredible discussion of the Lascaux Caves by John Green from the Anthropocene Reviewed um, because you found your way there through through a mixtape on Hark. So I, I, I would that to me is like why I feel lucky that I I fell in love with the right hobby way back then. So, you know, this year has been such an extraordinary one in our history with COVID-19 upending our lives, you know, and now this historic election. Have you had any what I call viral insights from COVID-19, that, that moment of clarity brought upon by a crisis? It's been such a tragic year on so many levels, not just COVID-19. I, I think, uh, I mean, I think COVID-19, all of the social justice, you know, just the travesty of uh, George Floyd and, um, and then the incredible partisan divide are the things that, so it, you know, I think having those things happen in a world where COVID was happening, um, which meant that some people were holed up in uh, places of comfort and some people were, were not, you know, I think again, really COVID has shown us that we are not all living in the same America and George Floyd has showed us that we're not all living in the same America. And I think what's, so I, I don't know that it's an insight, but it's, it's an imperative of what can possibly, um, help bring America, uh, together um, and another thing I work on is um, I created a, a website for Ken Burns called Ken Burns Unum, which essentially is allowing Ken Burns to uh, sort of create mixtapes of moments from his films um, around themes that where he's trying to help you see a moment from our history and how it applies to now. Um, for instance, you know, an interview he did with James Baldwin around the Statue of Liberty and how it relates to Confederate monuments. And, you know, my hope is that we can find a way. I mean, the thing that feels so powerless is how paralyzed we are and how we're not talking to each other. And the, and different parts of America are consuming fundamentally different media um, and getting fundamentally different perspectives. And one of the things, you know, to bring it back to Hark is I do, I do think what's powerful about it is we feel like we're creating a new medium. There isn't a place where you can hear a playlist of short clips from different perspectives on one topic. And I'm not saying that's all of what Hark is, but I, I think as we've started to, you know, wear the sweater and, and try out the elasticity of this form format, that's what's been the most powerful um, of trying to create something that actually isn't just one perspective or another, but brings those voices together. Um, and I'm not saying I think it's a silver bullet to solve the problem in America, but that's, that's not so much an insight, but as, as a concern. 
That's great. Well, Don, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I love your show. Don McKinnon is the CEO and founder of Hark, a podcast discovery, curation, and community building app that's launching tomorrow to help listeners discover podcasts that they otherwise might never have found. Thanks for listening to the 52nd and final episode of season two of When It Mattered. I'm really looking forward to bringing you season three in the new year. We have some great guests lined up and they'll be sharing amazing stories that will inform, delight, and inspire you in your own journey as leaders. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.